Hello to my fellow humans with true crime obsessions. Welcome back to Crime Obsessed Dog Mom. I'm Michelle, the Crime Obsessed Dog Mom, with my co-host. He's just a little bit of a sneaky ninja right now because he doesn't have his collar on. The baby dog known as Rory. Today we're going to look at Larry Eiler, also known as the Interstate Killer. Hello everyone. I apologize. I've been a little bit of MIA. Uh, I've had a little bit of some weird like health stuff going on. So um, I, I was feeling okay last week and then I kind of started not feeling so great. So I kind of ended up just taking the week off and I think bi-weekly is probably just going to be more realistic for me going forward. I might do, you know, pop a weekly in there every once in a while, but just with kind of like workload right now, and stuff going on with my family. It's probably just going to be easier to do bi-weekly. But, so I hope you all uh, understand. <laughs> I it's, it's a very snowy day here today in Michigan. Uh, I didn't know that it was going to snow, which is kind of interesting. And yesterday we kind of finally moved everything out of my childhood home, which was kind of weird. I don't, I don't feel like a ton of emotional connection to the house anymore for various reasons. Um, but yeah, so it was very interesting. Uh, to finally kind of unload, you know, I haven't lived there in uh, probably five and a half years or so, but I still had stuff from when I was a teenager there that kind of just kind of got put into the back corner of my closet. And yeah, now we, now we, uh, move on and I have everything. I still had teaching stuff in my parents, my dad's, my parents are divorced, my dad's basement. And it's we're gonna hopefully donate that to some new teachers that are gonna be starting and lots of art supplies and just random stuff and it it, it was hard to get rid of some of the stuff from random times in my life but I think overall it was probably for the best uh, you know closing closing that chapter on my life but that's kind of where we've been uh, it took a lot out of me yesterday I was very tired um, and you know winter. Winter generally puts me kind of in a lower energy mood, you know, less sunlight and everything. So that's kind of where I've been with life. Uh, and yeah, so we got to see my niece uh, yesterday, which was really nice. And she was a little cranky. She just wanted her mom. Um, but it was uh, it was nice seeing her. And we went out to dinner slash lunch. And it was nice to just kind of spend some time with just my brother and uh, my sister-in-law and the baby and just kind of being, you know, our late 20, 30, 30s kind of people. So it was, it's been nice to be able to just kind of hang out and do our own thing. So today's case is going to be a little bit on the longer side, which is part of the reason I didn't record last week because it took me a lot longer to do the research than I was anticipating. There, I just kind of kept doing a lot of deep dives and things got a little bit crazy. So, and I was like, man, I just do not have the energy to record what I think is probably going to be one of my longest episodes since. So let's get started. Larry Eiler was born Larry William Eiler on December 21st, 1952 in Crawfordsville, Indiana to a battered mother 
and an alcoholic father. So life was difficult from the very beginning for Larry. His father regularly beat him and his two older and one younger sibling. Even after his mother left his father, um, Larry's life, just at two years old, didn't really improve. Larry and his older sister were often put in the care of babysitters or foster homes. There were some times that the older sibling at was 10 at the time, they were put in charge of taking care of the younger kids. When they were in foster care, their mom would visit the two younger kids, which Larry later said that the constant separation and the reunions in his family had brought them really all together closer. In 1957, their mom remarried. He was only five at the time, but this mar- this new marriage was, okay, that made it sound like the new husband was five at the time. I meant Larry was five at the time. So I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> this is kind of a funny mess up. But Larry was five at the time when his mom remarried, but the marriage didn't really last for too long. Uh, they, she ended up getting married again a few years later in 1960. That lasted about four years, and then they ended up getting divorced again. Then she got married again in 1972. He ended up having, you know, Larry had several stepfathers, but unfortunately, they were very much like his alcoholic biological father. Um, they were both very abusive, and actually one time, one of the stepfathers put Larry's head under scalding water as a form of punishment. Even at school, Larry didn't couldn't catch a break. He was very active in school sports, but he was bullied by his peers because his family wasn't very rich. They were quite poor. And because his mom was kind of MIA, uh, his younger sister, Teresa, often helped Larry. And then, you know, Larry really described her as one of his closest confidants. As he kind of got older, Larry definitely hit a stubborn streak and had very erratic behavior. In 1963, when he was once again, he was still pretty young at the time, he did get put in a home for unruly boys. Uh, The experience was quite traumatizing, as I could only assume that kind of school or home would be. Uh, He begged his mom, hey, mom, please let me come back, please. Even after uh, a few weeks, he completed some, like a series of psychological tests, and they said that he was of average intelligence, um, but those tests did show that he was really insecure and had some really extreme separation and abandonment issues, which with everything that he's gone in and with his life, that all kind of tracks. The staff members did evaluate him. They determined that these issues really stem from his home life. Like I said, it was very, that I feel like that's a pretty easy uh, equation to put together. He, they did end up, uh, they sent him to a Catholic boys home in Fort Wayne, which is also in Indiana. He stayed there for six months before he finally ended up coming home to his mom. In his early teens, Larry did realize he was gay. He was open about his sexuality, and but he did struggle with homophobia, homophobia inside, and he really hated himself because he was gay. Remember, this is the early 70s. Yes, this is a time that the LGBTQ community was becoming more apparent into the, in the society, 
but it is a time that there were still a lot of hate crimes. Shit, there's a lot of hate crimes still out today, but this is a time that he kind of started hating himself because of how he identified. He was attending a school uh, in South Putnam. It was called South Putnam High School. He dated a few girls on and off, but he could never get himself to be like physical with them. And he did admit to some of his friends during high school that because of his religious upbringing, that is what really, he was having such a hard time accepting himself as a gay man. He ended up dropping out of high school his senior year and had a couple of odd jobs here and there, but he ended up did, he went and got his GED, which if you don't know what that is, it's essentially an equivalent to a high school diploma that you get after what would be quote unquote your high school years. He went to college sort of, kind of, uh, between 1974 and 1978, but he never ended up getting a degree. He was at war with himself during this time. He was continued to struggle and cope with his tendencies uh, as a gay man, um, which he simultaneously kind of, what he was fascinated by them, but also repelled him. He just, he just couldn't really, he was struggling. He was really at war with himself. Similar to if you know other serial killers like John Wayne Gacy and many others, um, he would learn to take his sex where you could find it. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes it was forcefully and then he would get rid of the evidence. Um, and because he was ashamed, essentially. When he did end up getting his GED, he ended up taking a job at Marion County General Hospital. He ended up later moving on uh, to a different career, took a job at like a shoe store, a liquor store. When he wasn't working, he frequented the different gay bars, um, building a community and for the first time in his life, kind of making friends. In his early school years, he when he did discover he was gay, he ended up kind of, and he did end up embracing it later in life. While working at a shoe store, at that shoe store, he became pretty well known in the gay community, later falling in with a crowd of men with leather fetishes, which fetish, you do your kink, girl, boy, do do you. Um, most friends and acquaintances described him as a pretty laid back guy. Um, he was known for his bodybuilding as well. And he had a very close relationship with his mother and sister. He ended up living in a condo in Terry Hout with a library science professor called named David Robert David Little, whom he first met in 1974. Well, he was studying at Indiana State at the time. The relationship between them was always platonic, and he really viewed his roommate Robert as more of like a father figure than anything else. David and Larry regularly kind of were in Indianapolis, which is in Indiana. They were socializing in the gay community, even though his roommate, Robert, was kind of a little socially awkward, but who isn't, right? Um, and wasn't necessarily considered attractive in the gay community. They kind of, he had a hard time kind of forming friendships and obtaining sexual partners during these excursions in the gay community, which resulted in Larry frequently bringing young men back home, back to the condo to engage with sex with both of them. 
On August 3, 1978, Larry picked up a 19-year-old hitchhiker named Craig Long on 7th Street in Terry Hout. Shortly after Craig got into the pickup, Larry propositioned him, um, resulting in Craig attempting to leave the vehicle, right? He, he tried to like, it was like, hey, you want to have sex or, you know, something like that. In response, Larry pressed a knife against Craig's chest. And, and as Craig uh, stated, he said, I don't have any money. Larry drove them into like a rural field area and stated, it's not your money you want. I'm not after your money. He ended up telling Craig to undress and he handcuffed him, bound him by his ankles and ordered him to climb into the back of the pickup truck. When he, Craig tried to flee, um, the pickup, Larry was undressed. Larry chased after him and long shouted, um, or Craig shouted, you queer quote in response. Larry ended up stabbing Craig once in the chest, which that actually that stab, that wound penetrated his lung. He ended up slumping to the ground, essentially waiting for death. Thankfully, he was able to stumble to a nearby house where the people that were in the house called 911 and got some paramedics. Not too long after, Larry ended up driving to the house that Craig was at, that he got the first aid at. Um, and offered because he's still handcuffed. Craig is still handcuffed at this time. He ended up giving the handcuff key to the sheriff's deputy, um, and kind of admitted like, Hey, I stabbed him accidentally. He was arrested and taken into custody. A search of the vehicle recovered the hunting knife, a metal tipped whip, a butcher's knife, another set of handcuffs, tear gas, and a sword which I feel like those are all things you probably don't want to get found with in the back of your pickup truck. Moving forward between 1982 and 1984, he, Larry, is known to have committed a minimum of 21 murders with one attempted murder. All of his murders involved the restraining of his victim. The several victims were subjected to various degrees of sadomasochism. Um, before he ended up getting, they ended, he ended up stabbing or kind of slashing them to death with majority of the wounds on most of the victims were in their chest and abdomen area. His victims were typically piled, uh, plied with lots of alcohol and different sedatives known as ethochloral vinyl before they were restrained and murdered. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them were disemboweled after they were, uh, they were dead and Larry did, um, was known to like dismember the bodies or he did dismember the bodies of four of his victims. He typically discarded any remains in the fields close to major interstate highways, which is kind of where the interstate hot killer came around. Um, he, the, the victims would still with their trousers, um, and frequently discovered like their, their underwear were frequently around their knees or ankles and their shirts and wallets would be missing from the crime scene. So to kind of go through all of these murders one at a time, remember this is between 1982 and 1984. 
On October 12, 1982, he, Larry, uh, lured a 21-year-old named Craig's Townstead into his vehicle in Crown Point, Indiana. Although drugged, extensively beaten, and later abandoned naked and comatose in a rural field, which caused this man to also suffer from exposure to the elements, he did actually survive. Uh, so this was the attempted murder that we had talked about. Eleven days later, on October 23rd, 1982, he abducted and murdered a 19-year-old named Stephen Crockett. His body was found in a cornfield in Kanakaki, uh, or Kankati, sorry, County, uh, approximately about 12 hours after he was murdered. Uh, his autopsy revealed that he had been beaten, stabbed to death. Uh, he had at least 32 knife wounds, um, including four that were to his head. A week later, on October 30th, 1982, a 26-year-old named Edgar Undercoffer uh, disappeared from Rancoil, Illinois. His body was unfortunately not found until about four months later in March in a field close to Danville, Illinois. Sometime the following month, Larry also murdered a 25-year-old barman named John Johnson. His body was later found a month later in Lowell, Indiana. Lowell? Lowell, Indiana? On November 20th of 1982, uh, he abducted a 19-year-old named William Lewis, who, uh, as he was kind of returning home, uh, he was near a location in Vincennes, Indiana. He was stabbed to death and buried in a close field in Rensselaer, Indiana. I'm sorry if I'm so horrible with names uh, with the, these different locations. I do apologize. On no December 19th, a 23-year-old named Stephen Agen was abducted in Terre Haute. Remember, that's kind of where he's um, Larry is from. His body was discovered in a woodland close to Indiana State Road 63 nine days later on December 28th. They did an, exam uh, an examination um, of an, like a building near an abandoned farm close to the crime scene. And that's that crime scene or that air, that barn revealed several traces of human flesh upon the walls in areas where plaster had been damaged, leading investigators that to speculate that Stephen had been suspended against the walls of this property as his murder had inflicted these injuries to his body. Noting that he had extensive mutilation to his abdomen, chest, and throat, who, according to the coroner who did the autopsy, he referenced the tremendous rage that Stephen's killer had exhibited upon his victim, um, adding a likelihood that there had been more than one perpetrator in this murder. So essentially, it was so bad that it looked as if two people had actually could, did the, done the murder. So it was just imagine that amount of rage that it would look like two people did it. So after they had concluded Stephen's autopsy, um, there was another body found uh, on a body of a 21-year-old named John Roach, who had been found close to Interstate 70 in Putnam County that same day. He also noted, the coroner noted, like, 
really, really similar things to the energy or the injuries inflicted to the two men, noting the there was the multiple stab wounds to the victim's abdomen, upper chest, and throat, suggesting just the over rage that this perpetrator, this this murderer, had. On December 30th, a 22-year-old Yale University graduate named David Block disappeared from the Illinois suburb of Highland Park, having told his family that he ended up, he was just visiting some friends in a nearby city in Highwood. His body was discovered uh, by a farmer in, in a field south of Route uh, 173, Illinois, on May 1974. On January 24th, 1983, Larry abducted and murdered a 16-year-old named Irvin Gibson in Lake County, Illinois. His body was not discovered until several months later in April. It had been dis- uh, discarded atop the body of a guard, a uh, dog, I'm sorry, that had also been stabbed to death, which is big, sad. Sad all of this. This is very sad. Between March and April 1983, Larry is to believe had is believed to have killed a minimum of five further victims between the ages of 17 and 29. On May 9th, the body of 21-year-old Daniel Scott McNeve was discovered in a field close to Indiana State Road 39 in Hendricks County. The wounds inflicted on the body immediately tied the murder to other victims that had, they were, the cop, the law enforcement was, linking these these are all very consistent these had to be the same person he had 11 knife wounds to the knife wounds to the neck five to his back and 11 to his abdomen with one wound causing sections of his small intestine to actually protrude out of his abdomen furthermore there were welt marks discovered on his wrists and ankles and his jeans had been pulled down to his ankles as with the other victims there was no like signs of sexual assault. Nine days later, Larry ended up murdering a 25-year-old named Richard Bruce in Effingham, Illinois. His body had been thrown over a bridge and didn't end up getting discovered for several months later. This murderous streak obviously caused the LGBT community to be in a lot of fear. They feared that this all of these disappearances all of these young men in the area they they were the work of a serial killer something was wrong the police were continually raiding gay bars and bookstores and often often filmed the customers that attended these places in order to keep track of the patrons they but there were fears right this is not the time that people were wanting to be outed um they there were fears that these videos would be released to public um, and that would put these people, the people of these community, even at a higher risk of something bad happening to them. There was a lot of uh, occasions that they, that police unfortunately would turn a blind eye to any kinds of assaults on the people of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and even the cops themselves would treat uh, the people of this community very badly. In 1983, the gay newspaper, The Works, decided to create, they created a hotline, anonymous. So essentially, they hoped that they could help 
figure out who was this, who was killing all of these men. They also published an article that they kind of theorized who it was and why they were doing this. They essentially suspected, which is almost dead on, that this person was struggling with their sexual identity and they hated themselves. They were, they had a lot of self-hatred issues. The newspaper offered up to $1,500 as a reward for any information that could lead to this arrest and conviction of whoever was, you know, terrorizing this community. The money that had been collected by the community, um, as well as a family, this, all this money came from, from the community, as well as a family of one of the victims. By early spring of 1983, as I had said, the police had linked these murders, several of the murders of these young men to the same person. Six days after the discovery of the one body, they conducted a meeting attended by 35 detectives from each of the four jurisdictions where these young bodies had been um, wounds, where all these, they're all having similar wounds, suggesting that this is the same person. The conclusion of the meeting was that the same individual had murdered all of these people in all these different jurisdictions, and they had to have a task force together to get this person. The four separate murder investigations within the Indiana, they were all kind of put together into one, and they were all kind of this big task force that would comprise of two detectives of state police, two from Indiana, Indianapolis police, and two from each county involved in the manhunt. They named this task force the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, and it was commanded by a man named Lieutenant Jerry Campbell, who was uh, in the Indianapolis police. And essentially, they put all of the information into a computerized database linked to the statewide police system. On June 6, 1983, the hotline that was had been created received a very interesting and illuminating phone call. I've heard it read. Um, Thomas Henderson, he was one of Larry's former boyfriends, had called the hotline and said, you know, I think that this, my ex, Larry, is, I've seen things called highway murder and interstate murder. This is essentially, he called him, they called him the highway murder as well. He told them that, hey, Larry had been charged with like a stabbing of a hitchhiker back, you know, back in the late seventies, which was Craig Long that we had talked about that had survived. Um, he said, you know, Larry had, was very violent. He had a very violent temper. He loved bondage, um, and sadomasochism. He also said that he worked at a liquor store on the weekends while living with his roommate, um, Robert Little and Terry Halt. He also told them that in May of 1982, that he had actually, Larry had abducted and drugged a 14-year-old uh, Green Castle boy. Um, essentially, after the boy was unconscious from there was heavy sedatives, as we had said before, uh, he dumped him. Larry dumped him in a wooded area. Um, they, he hadn't been molested and thankfully survived the incident. But it was believed that this incident w- occurred because that's when Larry was starting to test out the effects of sedatives and as a whole. So authorities, right, this is a very big hint that comes into the, or a, you know, clue possible thing that had come into the hotline. So the authorities performed a background check on this guy, right, on Larry. They found that record of him stabbing Craig Long 
and pretty much nearly killing him. Remember, this was this was very bad. They studied the incident. They looked at the you know the similarities of the stab wounds, how thing how he was handcuffed, and other details of the case. And they really believed that all these actions they fit the mo of the highway killer, interstate killer. So they often, they kind of took into account that Larry was traveling a lot between Illinois and Indiana where the murderers were taking, murders were taking place. The, they thought, hey, you know what? Let's keep an eye out, see where this guy's going. But they didn't think that it was quite enough of evidence to really put him like under full surveillance at this point. The task force did involve the FBI to create a psychological profile of the highway murderer. They presented this profile, said, hey, this is a white male in his late 20s or early 30s. He is more likely, has worked in a uh, menial profession. You know, he presented uh, as macho or he had that rough exterior, which also led to a self-hatred because he was gay. According to the FBI profile, the unsub or, you know, this, this person, this, uh, I always think of like criminal minds when they say unsub, but this, this perpetrator was likely to be a, a night owl, which nothing wrong with being a night owl and nothing wrong with attending bars, but he, he, that was a, a big personality part of his profile. He was likely, uh, afraid of being looked at as a gay man and would show a hatred of the LGBTQ community to mask the fact that he was also a part of this community. On September 30th, Larry ended up being arrested in Lowell, Indiana for just a routine traffic violation. He, at the time, had a young hitchhiker uh, with him and both were initially detained um, and for questioning at the state police post with Larry initially being detained um, for the charges of soliciting a young male for sexual purposes after a sergeant named William Cothran, without his consent, without Larry's consent, um, and before informing him he was under arrest, he had actually searched the F, the Ford F-Series pickup at the roadside and discovered two sections of ro- nylon rope and his vehicle was ended up being impounded. Shortly after 1.30 p.m. that day, the two investigators from the task force, the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, say that 10 times fast, they conducted a formal interview with Larry. They did inform him that he had become a suspect in this series of murders that they were investigating because of that anonymous phone call that had been received from that former acquaintance of his. He was willing to discuss pretty much any aspect of his life, um... And there's suspicions of having him committed, but he really refused to discuss anything about him being gay. They questioned him about the murders of John Roach and Daniel McKeeve. He claimed to have read the press coverage of both murders in the Annapolis Annapolis Star, but he did deny at this point that he had ever committed murder. He did consent um, for them to do a forensic examination of his vehicle. Um, They also, he also agreed to take his mugshot uh, have copies of his fingerprints taken, and they submitted him. Uh, he was a subject to a polygraph uh, test at a later date. Once, at, well, after, right, we talked about they were investigating and searching his truck, they revealed that rope 
along with handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball hats, a mallet, and surgical tape. They continued to question him and alerted the task force that they had uh, alerted him essentially of the task force that had been assembled, you know, assembled to investigate this series of murders. Immediately, the task force they they were peaked. Their their interest was peaked. Right, he fit the profile of their killer almost perfectly. His lifestyle matched what they thought was that of a man they were looking for. He admitted to commuting back and forth during the week between the Indiana and the Illinois areas where most of those bodies had been found. They continued to question him about the two murders, the most recent ones, but he had refused to cooperate as they, he was worried. They were worried that he now knew that he was the murder suspect. And they essentially were worried that he was going to get rid of all of this really important evidence. But so they did, thankfully using this information, they did manage to obtain a search warrant for the home of Larry and his roommate, Robert Little. Once they were doing or doing the search of his place, they discovered a ton of circumstantial evidence that linked him to the multiple of the murders. Receipts for handcuffs, credit card statements that put him in the, the areas at the times that the murders were happening, lots of knives, a hospital bill revealing that he had been, he himself, Larry, had been treated for a deep knife wound on the hand. They essentially, investigators, I mean, they they were, this is bullseye. They think that this is 100% him. On October 29th, just about a month after his first arrest, he was formally arrested and charged with murder based on those searches of his car, the home, everything, um, that it was just time that this they had enough evidence. They, by the time he, I mean, Larry was feeling the heat, right? They were, they were close on his trail. So he did have a legal defense team at this point. His team argued that the arrest of the, on the traffic violation, that's why he was originally arrested, remember, was uh, illegitimate. Everything that happened, well, it was legitimate. Everything thereafter that happened was not legitimate. All of those searches of his property they essentially claimed that he hadn't been properly Mirandaized um, before the searches, and despite that he had uh, signed a Miranda waiver, the timing of all of it was kind of suspicious. He also it also came out that the search of the one home was technically illegal, as the warrant hadn't been obtained actually before the search. So after several legal proceedings. Um, they kind of debated the back and forth of the legality of the various searches, various searches and his bond, Larry's bond at the time was reduced from $1 million to just $10,000. So he was released February 6, 1984 because Robert Little and his Larry's family, they ended up paying off the $10,000 fee, the bond. He was no longer in custody but he was instructed to not leave the state at this time. Prosecutors tried to appeal the suppression of evidence in the Supreme Court, but they were unfortunately unsuccessful. So a, a month after he was released from custody, he ended up moving into an apartment in Rogers Park, Chicago. Uh, his lawyer told him that he shouldn't give his new address to his boyfriend, John Dobowski. Um, and he followed this advice, but it didn't take his boyfriend very long 
John to figure out where he was living. Um, they remained in contact over phone, and they also met up in person after he had moved into his new apartment. About six months later, after they had he had been released from custody, he he struck again. On the night of August 19th, 1984, he brought 16-year-old Daniel Bridges to his apartment. And Daniel Bridges was found up. He was ended up being dead. He was the, or being killed. He was the youngest of 13 children. He had a rough upbringing. He'd run away from home. He was straight, but had been kind of working as a male sex worker since he was about 12, which is just, I feel so bad for him. He was a friend of Urban Gibson, which was actually, if you think back, was one of Larry's victims during the time. So he had been, like, he knew, he was worried about Larry, as many of the sex workers in this area were. Um, Daniel had been sexually assaulted at age nine and had been dealing with this trauma ever since. So he was wary of Larry from the beginning. Just two months before Daniel's death, he had actually been featured on a documentary on child exploitation in the U.S. Bridge Daniel told NBC reporters that this guy, you know, um, that was killing all these people, he was a real freak, and that all of the uptown male prostitutes were cautious of this guy. When Daniel had gone up to uh, Larry's apartment, Larry tied him to a chair with clothesline. He tortured him and then ended up stabbing him to death. He took the teen's body into the bathroom and drained the body of all the blood and dismembered him into eight pieces. He put him into garbage bags and disposed of him outside of his unit, which I feel like that's just not good. Two nights later, a janitor named Joseph Bala, he discovered the remains in the dumpsters not too far from the apartment. He had decided to check the bags because they were placed in the in, placed in a dumpster that tenants were not supposed to use. So that was kind of the initial suspe- suspicion. Thought they he essentially thought they had been illegally dumped. So he pulled out the bags, decided to see what was inside. Um, unfortunately, as he was doing so, one of the bags broke open, and you can only imagine the horror of finding somebody's severed leg. He had been suspicious of the garbage bags because pretty much every time that Larry would walk past with heavy bags, it just, his dogs would go berserk, right? The dogs could f- smell what was, what all of the, the blood and the gore essentially. Um, but the dog never acted like that when he didn't have bags, that Larry didn't have, walk, wasn't walking by him with bags. So once again, dogs, they know you got to trust them. He quickly called the police. Um, he told them that he believed he knew who disposed of the body because of all of the evidence that he had kind of collected um, and experiences that he had with Larry Eiler. Uh, another janitor also witnessed this man dumping the garbage in the dumpsters the day before. When the janitor had seen Larry throw out the bags in the dumpster, they even asked him, like, well, what are you doing? What are you, what are you putting in these garbage cans and quote Larry says just getting rid of some shit from my apartment shit as in a human body wonderful so when police captain Francis Nolan heard the report of the dismembered Bobby body he he recognized he knew Larry's name right away he told his officers you detain anyone 
in that apartment. I don't care who it is. Within minutes, Larry was arrested and his boyfriend, John, had also been taken into custody because he was there. But he did end up being soon uh, released without charge. A forensic examination of the apartment in August revealed lots of blood, copious amounts of blood had been recently cleaned from his bedroom. Um, Things had been repainted and there had been extensive traces of blood located in floors, walls, that ceilings, right? He dismembered this body. There was lots of uh, traces of blood determined. They all were ended up being determined that they were Daniel's. Um, They were also on the mattress, the seat of a chair, a leather belt, a sofa within one of the rooms, and even beneath the floorboards of the doorway to the bathroom. They ended up looking in his closet as well. They found Daniel's jeans that were saturated with blood. Um, His distinctive Duke University t-shirt, which also had a bunch of blood on it, um, that was in a hamper, along with a leather vest that Larry had that clearly had been recently washed. Moreover, they found a hacksaw on the property, which they assumed was the hacksaw that he used to dismember the body. They, uh, the blades for that tool, um, they were also discovered, they found them in a drawer within the utility room. There was also receipts discovered um, that showed that he had recently purchased several hacksaw blades. As they were doing forensic examinations on the bags that they had found Daniel's body or remains in, they revealed that all the fingerprints, um, or several of the fingerprints did obviously belong to Larry. Um, they were both on the internal and external surfaces of the bag, which it would be understandable to maybe find them on the outside, but not on the inside. Outside, right, the janitors, they were bringing everything out too. That's one thing. But to find them on the inside, that's, that's not where you want your fingerprints to be found with remains. They ended up doing a luminol test um, in his empty apartment. They that continued to show all the traces of blood, um, the markings on the floor where Daniel's body had been dragged from the bedroom to the bathtub, um, where he had, like I said, mentioned that he had been dismembered. He pled not not guilty. Larry pled not guilty to the murder charge on September thirteenth, and kind of maneuvered things. And it delayed his trial for two years. Finally, the proceedings opened in Cook County Criminal Court on July 1st, 1986, before Judge Joseph Urso. Jurors convicted him on all counts on July 9th. But his fate wouldn't be decided, uh, would be decided by trial's uh, penalty phase uh, beginning on September 30th, three years to the day that he had been stopped for that traffic incident. On October 3rd, 1986, the judge sentenced him to die for the killing of Daniel. He was sentenced, he was also sentenced to 15 years in prison for aggravated kidnapping and five years of attempting to conceal his victim's death. Over the next few months, more murder charges would follow as the task force linked more men to him. In private conversations with his attorney, Kathleen Kathleen Zellner, he ultimately confessed uh, to up to 21 murders that he does end up passing away. But his, this is client privilege, you know, 
Ugh, words are so hard. Client privilege. Um, she ended up keeping that to herself until after his death. There were lots of appeals filed, but nothing, nothing really panned out. Um, three years after he was condemned in 1989, in October 29th or 25th, 1989, this uh, Illinois Supreme Court confirmed, yes, this man did these things and his sentence. Um, and they did uh, fix his tentative execution date for March 14th, 1990. Obviously, it's very, death row is, takes, it takes a very long time. So actually, he ended up surviving until March of 1994. Um, he ended up passing away following complications from AIDS, um, which he ended up being diagnosed with after he was had been in, uh, in prison. Um, he shared he his some of his last request was that his Kathleen, his lawyer, shared his confessions to the world, and provided the details to individual cases um, that only the murderer would know. So on his dying his deathbed he admitted to all of the horrible things that he finally he had done so very scary um very intense case there's a lot going on it's you know he hated himself for being gay which is 100 percent. that's totally fine you do you you be who you are and unfortunately this led to him hating himself so much that he ended up taking that self-hatred out on others of the LGBTQ community. I thank you all for tuning in today, hanging in there. Once again, this is a very long episode for me. I normally try to keep them a little shorter, but that was part of the the issue with me not getting it out last week. Uh, I've been dealing with like a little bit of a nasal thing, not COVID, but a little bit of a nasal thing too. So if I'm a little nasally or seem to be out of breath, it's because I am, <laughs> but I did want to try to get an episode out this week. Uh, thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, always open to feedback, any case, story suggestions. All my source materials are going to be in the show notes. Uh, please subscribe, rate the podcast. Uh, we continue to grow. I appreciate everybody uh, always tuning in consistently. It's great to have a really small, I, I mean, it'd be great to have a huge group too, but a small group of consistent weekly listeners. So I do appreciate it. Uh, we will continue to try to do uh, bi-weekly episodes. Weekly episodes right now are just not kind of on the table with some stuff I've got going on in my life. Um, but do continue to check me out on Instagram, uh, Crime Obsessed Dog, Crime Obsessed Dog Mom, uh, Twitter at Co Dog Mom Podcast, and TikTok, which is my normally my most active platform. I post like once or twice a week. You should be able to search Crime Obsessed Dog Mom, find me wherever you want to find me, pretty easily. Uh, once again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate the support always. Uh, stay true, crime obsessed. Love on your animals. Be kind. And I will talk to you all soon. Bye.